Well, welcome back to our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you could open them up to Ephesians 4, verse 25. And we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And the title of this sermon is The Transformative Power of Walking in Love. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've noted that the first three chapters were full of the truth of who God is and what he's done, Uh, and that chapter four is the hinge point where Paul moves toward our Christian response to those truths. We noted that in chapters one through three, there was actually only one command, Paul calling us to remember. Uh, In turn... In chapters 4 through 6, we'll see 39 commands, and 13 of those commands come in today's text. Uh, Pastors and preachers regularly and rightly say that Christianity isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. That's true. But that doesn't mean that there aren't any do's and don'ts in Christianity. It means that the do's and don'ts aren't what earns our salvation or God's love for us. But what we'll see this morning is that they are a proper response because God has set his love on us and because he sent his son for us, we get to respond in worship. We get to respond in obedience to his commands. In fact, it's a joy. We take pleasure in submitting to Christ's commands. That's where we are in the book of Ephesians. If we truly believe the gospel, our walk or our way of life will actually look different. Up to this point, Paul's been teaching us this truth at kind of a high level, giving us principles about how we're to think, how we're to act as God's redeemed people. Put off this. Put on this. Well, today, he's going to bring it to ground level, giving us specific applications of what this looks like in everyday life. And I love this. Can you imagine how awful and unhelpful an instruction manual would be if it only spoke in theoreticals or philosophical terminology? I mean... I have a hard enough time with Ikea stuff, with just the little drawings and pictures. Can you imagine an instruction manual without specifics? If you'd like to build this bookshelf, you'll, you'll need your angles to be square. You'll, you'll need your glue and nails, dowel rods and hardware to go in the correct places. And you need to make sure that everything is structurally sound. Good luck. Come on. Can you not just tell me what to do step by step? That's practical. Well, while the Bible is much, much, much more than an instruction manual, it's not impractical. Today, Paul's going to get specific with us. So let's dive into the text. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Today's structure for this text is going to be a little bit different than normal, because there's really only one main point with several subpoints. So here's our one and only point. Point one, walk in love. Walk in love. So what does it mean for your way of life to be characterized by love? What is a Christian response to the gospel of Jesus? And I want us to notice that with almost all of these, there's both a negative and a positive aspect. So just like last week, put off and put on. As one author said, we must not only throw our dirty clothes in the hamper, we must put on the new suit as well. So, what does Paul say first? Look with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, negatively... The don't command, so to speak, is don't lie. And the positive command is to speak the truth. As we've seen so many times before, Paul is saturated with the truth of the word of God here. He's not just giving his own opinions or his own hot takes. This is directly from the scripture. Zechariah in the Old Testament. Zechariah 8, 16 through 17 says this. It says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Paul's quoting the Old Testament here in Ephesians. I understand this. This is what Paul wants us to understand. God hates lying. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates lying. Satan himself is a liar. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. He says, He, speaking of Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. God hates lying. 
Satan is a liar, the father of lies. Not lying is the eighth commandment. It's one of the big ten. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a, a big deal to God. Lying isn't harmless. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Christian character is more uh, than just the don't. The positive action, so uh, as the, he's given us the negative action, the positive action is, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So, who is this commanded for? Each one of you. Not just the, the really spiritual people, all of us. And who are we to speak the truth to? Our neighbor. While we learn from Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbor is actually everyone, the context here and from Zechariah 8 seems to be referencing the Christian community. Nonetheless, not lying and speaking the truth should be the case for us everywhere. Unfortunately, this is rare, isn't it? Even the concept of truth is somewhat of an anomaly today. We are lied to constantly by news stations, websites, politicians, and each other. If you're unfamiliar, each year the Oxford Dictionary selects a word that captures the culture's mood and their preoccupations. Well, in 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth. In a world of moral and actual relativism, speaking the truth is distinct. I want us to see that. Simply being a truth-teller is unique. Friends, we live in a world where sharing is ubiquitous. You can see an article, and with one click of the button, you share it to thousands of your friends. Many of us do this without taking the time to discern if what we sent was actually true. We need to hear this exhortation. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And what theological reason does Paul give us for this? For we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Do we see this? Not lying and instead speaking the truth has ramifications for our Christian community. Paul's reminding us that, that we as the body of Christ are members of one another. If the eye lies to the hand about a hot surface, it gets burned. There's real damage done to the whole body when one part lies to another. Further, there's the issue of trust. You all know how this works. If someone is known to be a liar, it's really hard to trust them. That is harmful to the body. And it doesn't work like it should if we can't trust one another. Third, this is about God's character. We are the body of Christ. We're meant to reflect who God is to the world. So when we lie, we're saying God's like this. 
We tell the world that God can't be trusted and that he's not truthful. Conversely, when we're known as people of the truth, we tell the world that God is truth. He's like that. He's rock solid and can be trusted with your life and with your eternity. Let's keep moving forward. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Same pattern here. A positive, a negative, and a theological reason. But isn't this interesting how this sentence starts? The positive is be angry. I must have read that wrong. Surely it said don't be angry, right? No. He says be angry. What's that about? Well, again, Paul's quoting scripture. Psalm 4, verse 4. It says be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. As Christians, we're not commanded to never be angry. In fact, we should be angry at the things that God's angry about. We shouldn't be characterized by anger, but there are some things that we should be appropriately angry about. This is what's called righteous anger. Being angry and not sinning. Being angry and not sinning. I know that I've quoted this before in the past, but it's still relevant and it's still true. Uh, Tim Challies has an excellent blog post titled Three Marks of Righteous Anger. Highly recommend going and reading it. Three uh, Marks of Righteous Anger. And in it, he says this. He says, the first mark of righteous anger is that it reacts against actual sin. It arises from an accurate perception of what is actually evil. The Shorter Catechism helpfully summarizes sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And he says, this is what ought to arouse our anger. Actual sin. This means that, he goes on, he says, this means that for anger to be righteous, it cannot arise in response to a violation of my preferences. It cannot arise because I have been inconvenienced or I feel that my rights and freedoms have been trampled on. Righteous anger reacts against what is really sin. Righteous anger. The second mark of righteous anger is a focus on God's concerns. Charlie says this. He says, when we turn to the Bible to find accounts of righteous anger, we see that this kind of anger focuses on God and on his kingdom, his rights, his concerns, not on me and my kingdom, my rights and my concerns. It is the violation of God's name or God's fame that motivates anger, not my name and my fame. So actual sin and God's concerns. And the third mark of righteous anger is godly expression. And this is key. Godly expression. He goes on, he says, finally, righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways, consistent with Christian character. Anger is too often opposed to self-control. When we are angry, we lose control of words, of tone, of facial expressions, and even of fists. 
But righteous anger expresses itself in a controlled way. It does not rant and rage. It does not swear and curse. It does not mock and sulk. It does not sink to self-pity and despair. It does not blow off people and storm away from them. Righteous anger is a controlled anger that moves toward good and specific ends. Jesus is our model here. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, in the synagogue, if you remember, says this, And he, meaning Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Anger itself isn't sinful. John Stott says this, He says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, and not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Jesus was angry and without sin. We're commanded to do the same here. But there's more practical truth here. He says, be angry and do not sin. Then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's he saying? Is he saying that if you're angry and, and the sun drops below the horizon, you're in sin? Or that there's certain periods of time when Alaskans can be angry for 24 hours straight? When the sun never goes down? No. He's saying that we shouldn't let anger fester. For married couples. I'm sure you've heard the advice. Don't go to sleep unless you've settled the issue. Meaning, if you're in a fight, don't go to sleep even if it takes all night. That's generally good advice. It's advice that Shannon and I have tried to follow over the years. But... I will say this, there are some times that it's actually better to go to sleep and to finish the discussion the next day well rested. I don't think you're sinning by getting some sleep. We talked about this at men's cohort last Sunday night. Just like being hangry, trying to work through an issue on a lack of sleep isn't always a good idea. You're not functioning well mentally at that point. Here's what I want us to see. The scriptural principle here is this. Don't let anger fester. If you and your spouse are in a fight, can you go to bed with things unresolved? Yes. But you shouldn't go to bed with anger burning in your heart. Paul doesn't say, don't let the sun go down on your argument. He says your anger. Don't leave anger unchecked. And what's the theological reason for this command? Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Simply put, letting anger fester in your heart leaves an open door for Satan to cause all kinds of havoc in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, and in the church. It'll destroy you. It'll allow the devil to use you in bringing all kinds of division. If there's any sin in your heart to exploit, he'll find it. And he'll use it against Christ and against Christ's people. 
Archimedes said, Give me a lever long enough with a place to stand, and I can move the world. That's Paul's point. Don't give Satan any lever into your heart. He'll use the opportunity for sin. Let's keep going. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Same pattern, a negative and a positive command. The negative, pretty straightforward. Don't steal. The seventh command, you shall not steal. Now, I know what you're thinking. This doesn't apply to me. I'm not a thief. And this was the context that Paul was writing to. Rampant theft was common in Ephesus during Paul's day. But we're not off the hook. James Boyce, he comments that a paper given at an American Psychological Association on employee theft presented a breakdown on the $8 billion, with a B, $8 billion that inventory shortages cost department chain and chain stores every year. Of these losses, $8 billion, of these losses, 10% were due to clerical error, 30% due to shoplifting, and a shocking 60%, $16 million a day to theft by employees. Can we honestly say that we honor our employers in every way on the job? In other words, even if you don't steal items, you're not stealing paper clips or, or staplers, do you steal time? Time that you're supposed to be working, given to social media or something else? Do you borrow supplies from your employer? What about with the IRS? Do you represent your income truthfully? Christians are called to be people of integrity. Further, stealing shows that we don't trust God to provide, doesn't it? We're taking something that God hasn't given us. We're saying, God is impotent to provide something for me, so I'm just going to take care of it myself. So, the negative command is, don't steal. But once again, there's something for us to put on. A positive command. He says, but rather, but rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Labor. Honest work. Do we know that work is good? I want us to see this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. To work and keep it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 is before the fall. Why does that matter? Because work isn't a result of the fall. I want us to see that. It's not a curse. It's good. Sometimes we, we think that work is just a necessary evil. But the Bible sees it very differently. While work is certainly harder because of the fall, it's a good thing. Your work matters, Christian. What you do, your vocation, is a calling 
It's a good endeavor. This is one reason why we pray for a different vocation each week in the pastoral prayer. We want you to be encouraged and to know that what you do is important inside God's kingdom. Work is good, but it's also necessary. Look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 through 12. He says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Further, Proverbs 28, verse 19 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. We're not called to laziness or to idleness. God's call to us as Christians is not to steal, but to work hard at whatever we do. Why? What's the theological reason here? Why should a Christian labor and do honest work? Look at the text. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that amazing? Our work is meant to fuel our generosity. Do you see it? We aren't fully obeying God by simply not stealing. The goal is generosity. John Wesley said it like this. He said, work as hard as you can. Make as much as you can. Then give as much as you can. Similarly, John Piper says that there are three options in reference to work. He says you can steal to get, you can work to get for yourself, or you can work to get in order to give. God's goal for us is that third option. We're meant to be a conduit of blessing to those around us. I want us to consider these two questions here. Two questions. Number one, how has God blessed me? Take stock of that. Be grateful for that. How has God blessed me? And then second, who has God called me to bless? Every single thing that we have is a gift from God. That's not our own. We're called to be stewards of God's good gifts. You and I, like Abraham in the Old Testament, we're blessed to be a blessing. Paul continues on, verse 29. Let no corrupting, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This word corrupting, it's the word sopros, and it means rotten, worthless, putrid, diseased, rancid. Pretty descriptive. In the Gospels, this word is used to refer to diseased trees, bad fruit, and rotten fish. This kind of talk isn't fitting for Christians. It's filthy. And in the context here in Ephesians, it refers to speech that's harmful and tears down. Lying, slander, gossip, vile speech. 
this kind of diseased, rancid talk, it'll make you sick. I guess it's more true to say that this kind of talk reveals that you are sick. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says this. He says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And then he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Corrupt talk comes from a corrupt heart. And in James chapter 3, he explains to us that the tongue is like a destructive fire or even a deadly poison. In other words, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me is bogus. What we allow to come out of our mouths matters. It's not a small thing. And yet again, with the negative command comes a positive one. It may be easy for us to resist corrupting talk, but look at what he says next. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as is fits the occasion. So the positive side of this is that we're to build others up as fits the occasion. We're called to be encouragers. When's the last time you encourage someone? When's the last time you encourage someone? Now, I've got a challenge for us this week. Pray about one person that God wants you to encourage. Take some time to pray about that. Then, it is miraculous, go do it. Go build them up as fits the occasion. Understand this. We're not talking about flattery here. It's not a good thing because flattery isn't truthful. But godly affirmation or, or encouragement, as fits the occasion, is an indirect way of actually praising God. See this. You're saying, I see this great characteristic in you. And God did that. Amen. It's like being at an art exhibit. And talking about how amazing a specific painting is with the artist standing right there. The artist is praised when you praise the artwork. Same with people. When you build up or encourage an image bearer, you're praising God as creator. If you need some help in this area, Sam Crabtree's book, Practicing Affirmation, is fantastic really helpful book on what it looks like to, to be an encourager, not a flatterer, but to actually praise God through correctly praising one another. Friends, we can never encourage and build one another up too much. This is one thing I want us as a church to be known for in this community, that we're an encouraging church. It's often said that the best defense is a great offense. Instead of corrupt speech, pause and build one another up instead. And look at the reason. He says that it may give grace to those who hear. If you want a church full of grace, build one another up. This is insanely practical, isn't it? The problem with practical application is you'll know if you've done it or not. There's actually accountability here. 
At the end of the day, you'll know if you've lied or spoken the truth, been sinful in your anger or righteous. You can take stock of if you've stolen or worked hard to be generous, if you've spoken corruptly or graciously. And look at this next verse. While it seems to be referring immediately to corrupting speech, it certainly applies to the whole section. Verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. First of all, do we see that the Holy Spirit can be grieved? It's a word that means distressed, vexed, grieved. Understand the implications of this. If the Holy Spirit can be grieved, he's a person. He's not a gas. He's not an emotional state. He's a person. The third person of the Trinity. And he is grieved when we disobey God's commands. Further, he's the one who sealed us for the day of redemption. Remember that? We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is the one who seals our redemption, protects it, and guards it. And when we flippantly or callously disobey these clear commands, we grieve him. It's to have no regard for him. What if before taking one of the actions listed in this text, what if we stopped to ask ourselves, will this action be pleasing to the Holy Spirit? Or grieve him. And it's almost as if Paul's answering this question for us in the next two verses. What grieves the Spirit? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. What's pleasing to the Spirit? Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is crystal clear. We're to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And what's Paul's theological reason? As God in Christ forgave you. In other words, the, the truth of the gospel propels us to live the gospel toward one another. We've been forgiven so much. And we're called to forgive so much. And to do that, we have to do everything that verse 31 called us to. If we're bitter, we'll never forgive. In closing, and to sum up all that Paul has said in this section, he writes kind of a a summary statement in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, Therefore, in light of everything he's just said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Simply put, to to obey these commands is to imitate God and to walk in love. Our lives are to be characterized by love, which is who God is. To have a life characterized by love 
means to speak the truth, to be angry at what, what angers God, to be generous with what we've worked hard for, to build up with our speech, and to forgive one another. Do we see that? Love isn't a vague, undefined thing here. It's tangible. It's specific. It's obedience to God's commands. And it's all rooted in the truth of the gospel. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He loved us in a very specific way. He died for us freely. For all of the ways that we've violated these exact commands in this text, for all of that, he absorbed God's just wrath for us. And his sacrifice was a fragrant offering to God, a sweet, sweet smell in his nostrils. While we can't die in someone's place or atone for sin like Christ, we are to follow him. We're to imitate God's love for each other. Santa Cruz Baptist, this is our goal and our calling as a church. Walk in love. Let's pray.